The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grosso. Tonight on Fast, we are charting this sell-off. One top technician lays out the key levels to watch following today's slide. Plus, a metals meltdown. Gold getting crushed in today's session. We'll find out what is next for this trade. And later, a rare green spot in today's sea of red. The one tech name that was a true high flyer. But we start off with that late-day sell-off. Stocks getting smoked into the close with the Dow posting a 700-point swing to finish near session lows. The Nasdaq losing more than 3%. And the market took no prisoners. All 11 S&P sectors closing in the red, led lower by energy, technology, and real estate. Today's big reversal coming six months to the day from the March bottom. So is this market recovery starting to stall? Was this a giant warning shot of more pain to come? Tim, what do you say? Well, we've been stalling since September 4th, and, and we had such extreme, uh, I think, euphoria in stock prices at that point that uh, we continue to have, uh, I think, kind of suffer the consequences of where we've come from. Today's news was a combination of, I, I get the sense that this is uh, more fear of, of COVID uptick. Uh, you see what happened across Europe. You see also... Uh, Kevin uh, Flynn, our producer, wanted me to talk about PMIs because he loves them so much. So here we go. Those PMIs uh, ultimately showed some sign that the services economy across Europe is ground to a halt. Um, what does it all mean for equities? Ultimately, I think it is about some, some key levels we have to get back to. But the Nasdaq, which yesterday had this uh, heroic run, Amazon, which had moved almost 8% in less than two sessions, um, a lot of that has been given back. Uh, the triple Qs are down 13% in 13 days. And I, I still think around 240 to 245 on the Nasdaq 100 triple Q ETF is a level uh, that still keeps a lot of this momentum intact. The Fed is absolutely absolutely still your friend. Uh, a lot of uncertainty around elections, but I think this is more about positioning. You sound like a dip buyer. Well, yeah. I think you have a case here where um, there's, there's, there's dynamics that have not changed. Mm. Uh, I think there are a lot of people that are still dip buyers. I don't think that rhetoric has changed, but I do think that, again, technicals have changed where yeah. uh, what was support is now resistance, specifically the 50-day moving average on a lot of these big stocks. Speaking of technicals, Steve Grasso, uh, Santoli was making this point. Pisani made this point on Twitter. We didn't breach Monday's lows on the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. How important is that? Uh, and what if we do breach them tomorrow? Then what? Yeah, so, so for me, if you look back on that all-time high, that 35.88 in the S&P cash, I was looking for a drawdown of, let's say, 15 to 20%. So Tim talks about levels, the 50-day right now, 33.50. So when you talk, I'm more concerned, Melissa, about the moving averages versus individual day lows. Mm. So the 200, 
3105. That has to be tested. That would be 15% lower than the recent highs. I think we're going to 2850 in the S&P. That, to me, brings us to roughly down 20% or so, plus or or minus. And, And when you asked him if he's a dip buyer, I think we're all always dip buyers, right? So what's the dip that we're buying? And I think that going into the election, more potential for civil unrest, technology having to have the fluff come out of that sector, I think the buy the the dip, dramatically lower than where we're seeing right now. And it remains to be seen if everyone has the wherewithal to actually buy it once we get there. Right. I mean, dips are in the eyes of the beholder, I suppose, Karen. (laughs) Today's dip may not be Steve Grosso's dip. It doesn't sound like it since he's saying 28.50 on the S&P 500. But what do you make of today's sell-off? So, you know, I am a dip buyer and I'm always looking for, uh, you know, I, I like the expression buy when there's blood on the street, even if it's your own. So one thing is I was looking, what do I want to buy? I'm looking, you know, at Facebook. I'm looking at uh, FedEx, which is 16 times earnings, Lowe's, which is 18 times earnings. There's stuff to buy. But one thing that was so curious to me was that that the uh, the VIX actually didn't go up nearly as much as I thought. And I really was wondering why that happened and my good friend Andy Constant, the great credit mind and macro mind, explained that any panic buying in the puts was being overcome by panic selling of calls. All those calls that had made so much money in the last four or five weeks before the sell-off, panic selling of that, that's what dampened the VIX. So it actually uh-huh. would be higher than I thought. I like when the VIX is high. I like when things trade down in integers. That's when I want to start buying stocks. So, so how do you use that information, Guy, that, that vol is dampened because of this panic selling of calls? Um, because usually <clears throat> you use the VIX as a tool to determine whether or not there's enough panic on the street in order to buy. It's interesting. I think Karen makes a great point. The fact that, you know, the, the, any put buying was offset and that's what mm-hmm. dampened volatility. Obviously, the Fed's been a dampener of volatility as well. I think... You, you factor that in and say, you know, maybe today's 29 VIX really should have been the 36 level we saw a week or so ago. I think that's number one. And Tim said something, and I happen to agree with him. You know, the Fed is still your friend. But I think, correctly or incorrectly, it's just my opinion, I think a lot of today's sell-off uh, came on the interpretation of Jerome Powell saying, hey, you know, we've sort of done as much as we can, that we have more tools, but we're passing the baton over to fiscal. You better right. get your act together. I think the market got a little upset by that. Again, I'm not suggesting the Fed is going anywhere because I don't think they are. But this was the first hint, in my opinion, of a Fed that's looking to pass the baton. Rightly so, by the way. Now, whether or not that happens remains to be seen. But I think a lot of today's move was sort of on the back of those comments. Whether or not it is a, a baton that is to be passed, it needs to, whatever the Fed does, needs to be bolstered by fiscal stimulus. And right now, Tim, it doesn't look like it's going to get any. So you have a backdrop of rising COVID, uh, you know, political rancor surrounding the election, and no stimulus, which had always been baked into the markets. So what's, what's your, what's no, your Tim, catalyst for, I mean, is, is the Fed going to be enough, all that liquidity <laughs> coming onto the market? Is that enough? I think it's 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 enough to a point, but mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't mean that people have to be allocating. And and so I, I think there's a, still a fair amount of money that's on the sidelines. And we've seen some outflows. We talked about some of those numbers 
in some of the big ETFs. Um, the, the, the earnings season catalyst also, I think, is one. And I, and I think the bar is different than it was going into uh, essentially the, the, the fiscal Q2. Uh, and as we look at, at where we are, I think a lot of companies have, have really delivered about as much good news as they can on a relative basis. But uh, I do think that there are ultimately those companies, and we're going to talk about them in retail, and we're going to talk about them. We're always talking about them. Um, there's, there, there are companies that are producing in an environment that is changing allocation and consumption trends. And there are companies that are really uh, going to continue to be, I think, in the sweet spot of that spending and that allocation. Uh, but right now, we are at a place where um, so much good news was priced in. And that month of August um, took away a lot of, you know, uh, of seasonal effects that, that really could have been ridden into the fall. Man, remember, last fall through October 3rd, we made a low, and we made a low that was only remedied, I think, by the Fed getting in there and doing that stealth QE, mm -hmm. which was really around the money markets. But that's what took us into year end. Um, there isn't that catalyst here, per se, from the Fed, but I do think we have uh, a lot of dynamics here that, that remain, and they're ultimately constructive for equities. Yeah, it is amazing that we're entering the final stretch of the year, and here we are with the S&P 500 virtually flat for the year so far. And Guy, in various shows, we've talked about various iterations of Apple being the king of the market, Apple being the tell of the market, Apple being the barometer. Here we are with Apple down about 14% uh, in the past month. So what does that stock yeah. tell you? And I, and I go back to something Steve said a week or so ago that, you know, he anticipated it trading down to this sort of that 95, 96 level. And I happen to agree with him. You know, I think the 103 level that we saw on Monday was a 25% move from peak to trough. But historically, and there is history for this, you, the sell-offs of magnitude in Apple, you've seen anywhere from 32 to 38 percent. And I think, you know, that 95 level probably puts you right there on the screw. So I, what it tells me is, you know, as much as everybody, you know, I understand the reason you want to own Apple, you just want to close your eyes. There, here's a stock that's given you many opportunities over the last decade uh, to get in at meaningfully lower levels than the prior all-time high. And in recent past, I mean, within the last two years, a move from 225, which was at the time an all-time high, to 150 in a straight line. And then recently, um, I know this is pre-split, but the move from 325 down to 240 in a straight line. So the stock's given you those opportunities. And quite frankly, we're on the precipice of exactly that again, Mel. You know, you could, to Guy's point, that 100-day moving average is now 97 in Apple. And you can, to what Guy just said before, you can close your eyes and you've been rewarded with that in the stock. For me, I think those days are gone. And you want to talk about dip buying, as you said before, this is the ultimate dip buyer's barometer. Now you have an upward moving 200-day. It's at 84.90. I'm gone past the ultimate. If we really get the sell-off that I think we're going to get... That's the level, Melissa, that's going to be tested in Apple. And just think about how many people will get gutted in their idea, their brain, their emotions if Apple trades to mid-80s. That will be terrible for the overall market. Your sentiment is, a, is key here, Karen, especially when you're talking about a lot of retail investors who had gone into the markets in general, gone into Apple specifically, mm -hmm. rode it all the way up. And here we are. Um, I'm wondering if you think Apple is, is as important a barometer for the market or if there's maybe a, something else on your screen, whether it be a stock you own or not, uh, that is a, a good tell for you on the market's direction. I think Apple is still pretty good tell on the market's direction. I think, I mean, I am long. I'm long all the way to the top, still long. I'll probably buy more if it trades down. 
um, if trades on further. I think it, it still is, it's, it's such an American iconic company, and I think that the NASDAQ has obviously moved the market up, and it's now moved the market down. I still think it's central to our, all of our sentiment. It's a very widely owned retail stock as well. So I do think Apple is still a barometer, but I think today, um, you know, the, as I think it was a guy talking earlier that this, the fiscal um, floor not being there, I think, is increasingly important. And kudos to Brian Kelly for calling that when it really, uh, I, I felt it was very, very likely to happen. Now, not likely to happen. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be out of the market at this point. Um, let's talk more about today's deep sell-off and bring in Mandy Zhu, uh, the chief equity strategist, derivative strategist at Credit Suisse. Mandy, great to have you with us. What did you make of, of the pullback today? Thanks, Melissa. It's great to be here. Um, so I think what's interesting, I heard you guys mention the VIX um, earlier in the show, and I think that's definitely you know, something worth highlighting is that despite a very sharp sell-off that we've seen in the equity market, we really haven't gotten much of a reaction in the volatility markets with the VIX still being relatively muted, sub-30. Um, and the reason I know I, w- I would attribute it not so much to lack of or to selling of calls, but rather a lack of demand for downside puts. What's really remarkable is that we just haven't seen any panic from institutional investors on this way down. In fact, you know, we've seen people buy protection in August on the way up. And during this recent correction, monetizing those hedges, or selling downside puts, monetizing those hedges on the way down, I think that's been a big driver of why the VIX has been so muted. So what that signals to me is you know, there really hasn't been any capitulation. People are still taking this sell-off in stride. You know, what we've seen investors do is you know, clean up positioning, especially in sectors and names where they've maybe gotten a little overextended, for example, in tech. Um, but right now, there hasn't really been any broad, you know, panic selling that we've seen from the institutional investor community. So, so that's that's an interesting point, Manny, in terms of monetizing the puts at this point. Uh, does that mean that you believe that there there will be a, a big spike in VIX down the road? You know, it, it, so I, I do think we're going into a period of very elevated uncertainty, both with, with regard to you know the fiscal stimulus and also obviously with the U.S. election. Now, what's interesting is that the VIX right now is low, but if you look at VIX futures, you know, November or December, they're actually pricing a fairly big jump in volatility because of the U.S. election. That's been the number one catalyst on investors' radar, and people are, across asset classes, pricing in a record amount of election wall premiums. I do think a lot of that is already priced in. Um, and the other thing that I would highlight on the election front in terms of potentially what's driving a lot of the recent weakness is that, um, you know, we talked about the election, a contested election outcome, right, is now the almost, I would say, the base case scenario in the volatility markets. If you look at um, options that are expiring in December, those options are trading with higher levels of volatility than options expiring in November. And that's very, very unusual because typically you see volatility actually fall very sharply after the election, whereas this time around, the market is saying we're in for a period of prolonged and additional volatility, you know, even after the election, uh, due to the possibility that the winner may not be known or that it may be contested. So I think this, all of this just kind of dampens, you know, 
sentiment and no one really wants to kind of step in here. No one has the conviction to step in here and put on, you know, trades in meaningful sizes because of this potential uncertainty due to the election. So if, if VIX is, is priced to be higher in December, what, what does it look like in January? I'm just wondering what the options market is thinking in terms of how long that uncertainty plays out for. So far, it's limited to just December. Okay. So, you know, that December is the highest point of volatility on, on the volatility curve. And then after December, it really starts coming in. So right now, people are, I think, investors are thinking this is, you know, a, a one-month additional period of volatility. But, of course, you know, inauguration isn't until January. So we could see additional volatility even beyond that, but that's not priced in. So what is priced in is just additional volatility until December. Tim, do you have a question? Hey, yeah, hey, Mandy. So thanks for joining us. What do you think about how banks have kind of, if they haven't led this move down, they've certainly, it's been concurrent with a tech pullback. And what do you see in terms of positioning by institutional players around the banking sector, which we've had plenty of good strategists on our, our, our network talking about how the performance of the banks, John Roke from Wolf talked about this, really is on some level a harbinger for where we're going to finish the year. Um, wh- what do you see around bank positioning? Because it, it's been, it, it's certainly been very remote uh, uh, price action. Yeah, I, I, I would say, you know, there just hasn't been a ton of interest in the financial sector, um, you know, in terms of exposure amongst institutional investors. People have been taking down exposure to financial names uh, for a very long time. And on the options market, we really haven't seen much uh, in, in that sector. I think the focus in recent weeks has really been in tech. Um, but, you know, the, the question of, you know, rotation into cyclical names, you know, we've seen kind of <laughs> rotation away from tech into financials for a brief period of time, but it hasn't really been sustained, right? And to me, you know, for financial stocks to really rally from here, we need more fiscal support. We really do need more fiscal stimulus. That's going to spur a stronger economic recovery, and that's when you have, you know, higher yields, uh, you know, and, and stronger performance in the financial sector. So without that, you know, I, I really do see this sector struggling in the near term. Mandy, always great to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Mandy Zhu of Credit Suisse. Guy, do you think that the equity markets have priced in uh, a contested election through December? No, because I, I don't think that's at all. I think that there's clearly tail risk there. And if you get a contested election, I mean, it's not going to be your garden variety one. And I'm talking, obviously, Bush Gore. I think it's, this one could make that one look like a walk in the park. So I don't think at all it's pricing in the potential for a contested election and what that looks like uh, in terms of the, the mudslinging and the nastiness could be associated with it. So the short answer is no, I don't. All right. Well, um, with the steep sell-off, we are always asking the traders whether or not they are finding things to buy, finding opportunities in the market. And Steve, you actually, you did see dips, so to speak, in certain stocks that you're willing to take, take a flyer on. <clears throat> Right. So it was based on more or less the rotation that I still think will be uh, evident as we uh, really start to work through this sell off. So it's the chemical name. So it's the Olin, the Trinseo and then Westrock. I bought that off of that bullish FedEx headline where they said they hired 27 percent more seasonal workers. So for me, I'm looking for that rotation to take place. But remember, if the market sells off, these names are going to sell off, too, hopefully to a lesser degree. Mm-hmm. Now, another name, Capri, named that uh, a couple of weeks ago. 
popped up 35%, still up 20%. Look for the names that you feel as if the sum of the parts really get you a valuation or a stock price that's going to be advantageous in the next couple of months, not the next couple of hours. Yeah, and Capri, for those of you who missed that show, was Steve Grosso's fast pitch one night. Uh, Karen, you had actually mentioned FedEx. Did you actually buy more FedEx? No. I mean, I was hoping that FedEx would trade down, you know, somewhat more (laughs) closely with the market. It really didn't. I think it was maybe down two bucks. I'm not exactly sure where it closed. I'd like to see that puked out a little more. But I, 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 this level is okay. I just felt like there could be more selling. So I own FedEx. I definitely would buy more here. I think if, surely if the market trades down, it's likely to trade down with it. But I think in, in a, in a, in a um, reopening or if another wave, I think FedEx will do fine in either scenario. So that's one. If I own none, I would be buying it right here. Coming up, much more on today's sell-off. The metals losing their shine will break down what is going on with this quote-unquote safety trade. Plus, J&J taking a big step forward in the race to find a COVID vaccine. The full details when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert out of Washington. Let's get to Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Melissa, a growing number of companies are filing lawsuits against the Trump administration demanding a reversal of the China tariff policy and refunds for tariff payments that these companies have already made. You've seen some of these individual companies making headlines for these lawsuits in recent days, but we've now learned that the number is as high as more than 3,400 companies that have launched a coordinated massive legal effort against the Trump administration to try to affect this policy change among the companies that are included in these lawsuits, Tesla, Ford, Home Depot and Taylor, Orvis, many household names. We've reached out to the Trump administration, specifically to the office of the U.S. Trade Representative, which is the first of many uh, federal agencies that are listed in these lawsuits. We'll let you know when we have a response, but it is certainly uh, a sign that corporate America is uh, fighting back against the administration for the costly tariff policy uh, two years now in the making. Melissa. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Um, I guess it's worth a try, Tim. Maybe at least they could get a stay on the tariffs. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I, I think on some level it, it could be procedural. And I, you know, I, I certainly bet they hope it's not political. Some of those companies mentioned, I think, have some alignment. So it seems with this administration. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think this is a, a, a dynamic where the, the tariffs have forced a lot of companies to go outside of their traditional supplier zone and, and to get into, uh, I, I think, new manufacturing. But, but ultimately, um, I, I do think that the, the, the tariffs have had a benefit to some of those companies in there as well. But it, it just seems to me that uh, these are the type of headlines that you're going to always see around you know, tariffs, which typically um, in many cases haven't worked. Look at, look at how they've certainly uh, hit the steel industry, some of the mining industries and, and even the auto industry. Uh, it hasn't been good. 
All right. Well, the new States of Play poll from CNBC and Change Research showing vaccine doubts are starting to creep in. Only about a third of likely swing state voters say they plan to get the coronavirus vaccine when it becomes available. That's down from nearly half back in July. That drop is driven by Democrats in the battleground whose willingness to get the vaccine fell 26 points in the same time frame. This comes as Johnson & Johnson announced some big news on its coronavirus vaccine. Or Meg Terrell joins us with the latest. Hey, Meg. Hey, Mel. So J&J announcing that the first participants have been dosed in its large phase three clinical trial of its potential COVID-19 vaccine. They are going to enroll up to 60,000 people across three different continents, ages 18 and older, with a special focus on ensuring diversity and enrollment among those over the age of 60. Uh, now, what's different about this vaccine is that it's the only one so far that requires just one dose. The ones from Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca are all two dose regimens. Now, you mentioned that uh, pushback against potentially wanting to get a vaccine that we're seeing in the change research poll, a lot of that, of course, tied to perceived political pressure on the FDA. And this morning, the president tweeting that the FDA must, quote, move quickly um, on these vaccines. Uh, we asked Dr. Paul Stoffels, J&J's chief scientific officer, about that perceived political pressure and his confidence that regulators will take the appropriate time on these vaccines. Here's what he said. I'm very confident in the regulators worldwide that they will uh, that will that they first want to see good data before they will approve. But we also have our own principles. We are developing medicines and vaccines for more than 60, 70 years, and we always stay to our own principles of making sure that the benefit risk has to be very well established before we bring a, a vaccine or a or a medicine to uh, to patients. Mel, Dr. Stoffel is also saying that if the vaccine proves to be safe and to work, uh, they will have batches ready for potential emergency use authorization early 2021. You know, Meg, it strikes me that everybody on the FDA who has a has a hand in approving a vaccine ultimately should take that vaccine themselves. I mean, that would be the ultimate confidence uh, boost. It would be. And Dr. Hahn, the FDA commissioner, as well as uh, other top health, health officials, including Dr. Fauci, were asked today if they would take the vaccine. All of them said they would. OK, well, that's good. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. <laughs> um, Johnson Johnson, as Meg had mentioned, one dose, which effectively makes it more effective in that you're not relying on people to come back and get a second dose for full efficacy. So, Guy Dami, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I've, obviously that's a cap that it's very difficult for me to wear given my education. But what I'll say is this, in terms of the stocks, mm -hmm. every name that's been associated with a, a vaccine doing great, wonderful, tremendous things has really been a dud. I mean, look at Gilead, for example, which spiked over 85. Look at where it is today. I think it closed at 63. Moderna's another name that I think you know made a $95 high. That's in the mid-60s. So if you're buying J&J &J on the back of this, in my opinion... You're doing it wrong. J&J topped out at 157 or so in April. We, we re-sort of tested those highs recently. And now here we are in the mid-140s. You know, I, I think there's a chance that J&J &J does a little back and fill into the high 130s, mid-130s into earnings on October, I think, 10th. So don't buy these stocks thinking there's some panacea here because I don't think there is. All right. Coming up, we are charting the sell-off. One top technician lays out the key levels to watch following today's big slide. And later, there was a green arrow in today's sea of red. We'll tell you what sent shares of Twitter flying. All that and more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was an ugly day on Wall Street. Stocks are racing early gains to finish the day deep in the red. But there was a glimmer of good news in all the selling. Let's get to Bob Pisani with more. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. You know, we closed above the Monday lows of 32.29. That's the good news I've got. That's not much good news, though. You know, since September 3rd, it's really been downhill. The average stock isn't doing well. The equal weight S&P 500 is at its lowest level since mid-July. And healthcare and banks and energy, small caps, they're in very clear downtrends right now. As for all these investing styles we talk about, nothing is working here. Value, growth, low volatility, quality, momentum, it doesn't matter. They're all down 5 to 8% this month. You can't blame the traders for getting a little worried. Of the half dozen buckets we always talk about moving the markets, only one. The progress on treatment of a vaccine, that's a clear positive. Everything else, not so much. The reopening story, the stimulus story, the China trade story, and valuations, that's a problem here. Technology stocks have benefited from coronavirus and work from home. Yet nobody knows how to accurately value them. You keep talking about Apple. Look at Apple, $100 to 138 and back to 107 all in seven weeks. The biggest company in the world goes up 40% in August and drops 22% in September. Does that make sense to you? So I called Art Cash and he told me, I'm looking for logic in a market that's trading on momentum. If we get a vaccine, stocks will rally. But in the meantime, he says, what do you want anybody to do? You buy COVID defensive stocks like Apple, so it goes up. And then it goes down big because it hits the sell stops. The momentum guys are keeping very tight sell stops to avoid getting caught up in this big reversal. So Art says basically it's wash and it's then then rinse and you do it all over again. It's like Groundhog Day, Melissa, essentially. And it's very frustrating, frankly. Sounds like it's going to be a wild ride. Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani. Today's sell-off comes as the market bumps up against some key levels. So where are we headed from here? Let's go off the charts with Rob Slimer of Fundstrat. Rob, what are you looking at? Hey, thanks, Melissa. So there's obviously some pretty key levels here. Bob mentioned them earlier, that 22-32 level at the June highs. That's obviously be the sort of first support level. It takes us right back to the June 8th highs. The next level I think we should be looking at is at that 31, roughly 3,100, roughly around the uh, July lows. And then I think everybody's focused on that 200-day moving average, which is around that 3,100 level. Uh, and then that's followed around about 3,000, which take us down sorry, to the, to the July lows. So there's a pretty big band of support here that I think the market can pull back into. A lot of the shorter term indicators, which you can see on the chart uh, in the bottom panel of the chart on the screen, is working its way down into oversold territory. And we certainly see that with a lot of technology stocks that led the correction. I think it's interesting, though, that when you step back and you look at the intermediate term background, when you're looking at weekly charts, 
a lot of those still need a lot more time to unwind before they get back to sort of a neutral or even an oversold level. So we're expecting a bit of a zigzag pattern. You come down into these support levels, you get a bit of a bounce going into the beginning of October, and then another pullback going into the middle of October. And at that point, I think a lot of stocks will have unwound a lot of that excess that developed going into the end of the summer. So we're looking at another couple of weeks, basically, Rob, until you think that there could be buying opportunities because it's, it's unwound enough. That, that's my roadmap mm-hmm. that we have going into uh, the middle of, of next month. Um, obviously, a lot of we're going to get some short term bounces in here. I think we're probably setting up for one relatively soon. But I think in terms of really putting capital to work, it's just an issue of time. The market still needs to unwind a lot of the excesses here. You were talking a lot about Apple, Rob, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on on Apple and whether that is one that has unwound enough or if there is more downside here. I don't think it's quite there. When you look again, if you step back away from the noise of the daily charts and we look at the weekly uh, chart profiles, it still needs quite a bit of time. So I think there's still more downside in Apple. Um, but there's other names out there that are starting to come into some fairly interesting levels from my perspective. Yeah, which are? Well, uh, you know, let's, let's start with some of the big cap growth names that have broken out of two-year trading ranges. Amazon would be one, but Netflix, for example. I mean, I think these charts, as much as people are talking about a secular peak in technology, Netflix is just pulling back or is getting to those levels where it's getting back to the top of that trading range around that 425 level. So, again, a little bit more time, but it's going to catch up to the 200-day moving average, the 40-week, and to the upper end of that trading range that's been in place uh, for the last 18 months. And when you look at something like um, an eBay, for example, same type of profile, they're not that extended. They're unwinding that excess sort of in that 42 to 44 range. I think it gets really interesting. And then probably one that has a lot more hair on it and is probably controversial, but I think the semi-cap equipment names are so important because they led the correction. They peaked on August 8th, well ahead of the market. And something like LAM Research is already back to its 200-day and it's been chopping around that level for the last week, week and a half. So I think that's actually fairly interesting at current levels. All right. Rob, great to speak with you. Thanks for the charts. Rob Slimer, a fun strat. What do you think of these names, Tim? Well, if you if you think about uh, some of the tech names and you think about Lamb or you even think about eBay, I, I think you, you have some of the, the secular trends that have made uh, some of them uh, to be go to stocks. But Netflix, for sure. And, and what I think we've seen and I think we saw this earlier this week when we when we walked in, uh, some of that news on Monday was around Europe and, and some of the up, you know, the, the uptick uh, in covid that we were hearing and some of the closures. Um, what were the trades that were being that were very defensive? And, and Netflix was certainly one of them. So um, I think you can follow some of the same playbook because uh, th- there will be those folks looking back into the stay at home trade. I think largely if you look at the Nasdaq 100, uh, as I have indicated, I think we go back to uh, around those July one levels that I think are, are some of the places that 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 Rob was talking about. But on um, um, the triple Q's, that's somewhere around 240, 240 to 245, which would make it a 25 percent pullback. Um, 2850 didn't cross Rob Slimer's lips, Steve Grasso. So I'm curious what you make of his levels. Yeah, no, I like Rob's work. And, and Rob is being, uh, you know, realistic in what's in front of him. And obviously those levels of 3105 in the S&P and then 3000, the natural big fat round numbers attract people. But I'm looking in worst case scenario uh, for what we have to test and I do believe that 2850 level will be tested yet again. And as far as his picks, eBay and Netflix are both up 
40 and 45% year to date. I would go with the lamb because it's counter, it's counter to everything that, that uh, people hate about the marketplace. Tech is overbought. It's bloated. Lamb, as he said, first to peak. Now it's trofting. I think it's time to buy that one versus the other two. Coming up, big tech under fire in a big way on Capitol Hill will bring you all the headlines as the White House preps to crack down on the industry. Plus, Costco, one of the big winners during the lockdown. Can it continue? We'll dive into what the options market's saying ahead of the company's next earnings report. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Twitter. Topping the tape today, the social stock soaring more than 6% on an upgrade from Pivotal Research, which says Twitter could run another 40% higher from here. Guy, your take on this call. Well, I love the fact that they, their price target is $59.75, which I find fascinating for a number of different reasons. So, you know, I don't know if it's going there, but you know, I know, uh, first of all, I know Dan Nathan power pitched this sucker, uh, I think, when it was trading around 32 and we've been across the board, we've been very bullish on Twitter. And you've had sort of back and fills along the way. But you go back to the last quarter. I mean, I hate the metric, but daily active users was up 8%. I mean, you have all good things happening. And they say they might be able to monetize better based on the 2021 Olympics. That remains to be seen. Again, Twitter's given you every opportunity to buy the stock and stay with it. It looks great on a chart. And I think it's continued to grind higher. So, Good for them. They're probably late to the dance, but at least they're at the dance. I'm sure there's deep fundamental analysis and a huge model supporting that 58.75 price target level. <laughs> uh, Tim, I, I don't know what your model might say about that. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's a multiple of revenues, which is maybe what you have to do. Although I think Twitter has shown that they, they have been growing EBITDA and, and some of their uh, yeah, some of their usage and their engagement numbers are on, but but Pivotal is talking about not just the Olympics, but they're talking about their their direct response business. They're talking about uh, a nascent subscription business, and these are things that we've been waiting on for a long time. I, I'm long the stock. Um, the best thing about it to me is the chart, and the chart is that you're you're getting back to those June 2018 levels where it, you know it had consolidated, and again, nothing uh, trades in a straight line these days. But Twitter always runs with a beta of two to three, um, and and so if you look. Look at that consolidation over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. This looks like the level it's been building to break out from. And I think that's something that this note at least is building on some of the good news there. All right. Well, we're following a developing story that could spell trouble for the tech trade, including Twitter. President Trump continuing his push to crack down on big tech in a meeting with Republican state attorneys general today. Elon Moyes got the details. Elon. Melissa, I spoke with the head of the Republican AGs, Jeff Landry of Louisiana, after he got out of that meeting with the president. And he told me he is 100 percent behind the DOJ if and when it decides to sue Google over antitrust violations. I can tell you that uh, we absolutely will be joining the U.S. Department of Justice if they if or when they take that action. Uh, Louisiana will be there. Now, Landry also warned that any potential DOJ action wouldn't stop the states from potentially filing their own antitrust lawsuit. He called out specifically Google's acquisition of DoubleClick as a red flag and said that Facebook has been predatory. Now, that meeting at the White House was ostensibly about a separate but related issue of trying to rein in the tech industry's liability protections. Attorney General William Barr said that companies have become emboldened by their sheer size. 
These platforms can abuse those positions of trust, whether by deciding which voices they're going to amplify. The increased size and power of these, of these entities really exacerbates those concerns. Now, the DOJ, the DOJ has sent draft legislation to Congress on what's known as Section 230. But so far, guys, it does seem that there are no Democrats who support this. Melissa. All right. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy. So potentially this sector faces two separate issues, antitrust concerns, but also efforts to curb uh, the protections afforded to them by Section 230 uh, of the FCC. Karen, um, are these I feel like they've been these these threats have been around forever and nothing's really hit the stocks. Right. Um, I mean, we saw GDPR and, um, you know, a couple of years ago and the resolution always ends up being a positive and the announcement of the action itself or the threat of it is what weighs on the stock. I feel like they've they've been under this cloud for a long time. And I think that, you know, it's if we see a Biden victory, then I think the boiling of this, you know, this is like front and center right now. I think that will recede. And I think not I, I know it's somewhat bipartisan, but it's not a burning issue for the Democrats like it is for the Trump administration. So that could happen. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, bad news is already priced in. Yeah. Steve, you agree with that uh, the take on, on Biden, Biden being friendlier, a friendlier administration to tech? No, because if you go back and replay the debates, uh, we had Elizabeth Warren, we had Kamala Harris. Not so much Joe Biden, but, but I, I don't think he was asked to weigh in. They would like to break up the large, uh, large cap tech companies. So there's going to be a real push. I do believe it is bipartisan. And I don't think the foot is going to be pulled off the gas the more the Democrats get pulled left and start listening to Elizabeth Warren or even Kamala Harris as the VP. So I don't think there is an easier path for tech going forward. Okay. Coming up, there was no shine in the mining trade in today's sell-off, but can the sector recover from here? We've got some answers. And later, options traders are going big and bulking up on this one retail name. Yep, that was a clue. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Gold miners getting slammed today, down more than 5%, almost 6%. This is gold hit its lowest levels since July Guy Adami, what do you make of this trade? Is this is this a dip to buy? I think I think so. Yeah, and I think that obviously what I make of it is the dollar's been strengthening. I think the commentary that we spoke about earlier out of the Fed definitely hurt uh, this group, and maybe rightly so. But again, I'm a believer. I don't think it's over. I think if you still think the Fed's in the game, you got to still think gold's in play, and I think it is. In terms of Newmont Mining, which I think closed today around a little north of sixty dollars. 56 is a level that it troughed at back in June. If it gets down there, I think you buy it into their earnings release. So to answer your question, I don't think the move higher is over. I still think we're in the early innings of this. Tim, what do you think? The, the, the guy talked about the dollar, which, which had a move lower of about 10% from March 19th through to about three weeks ago and has risen 3% decidedly and possibly heading higher. Um, that will put pressure on gold. But the trend for gold, um, I think, is very much alive. And remember, this is a Fed that's struggling to get to inflation um, while they're flooding the world with money, as is every other central bank. It's a good formula for gold. Um, the, the, the bigger beta move has probably been in silver, which was also uh, the big catch-up trade on 
people uh, trading that gold-silver ratio, which got to places where, where it really looked like it was a buy for silver. Silver probably has some more room to unwind. Um, and if you look at copper, though, overall, what we've seen around materials and commodities, and it's not just the oil trade, which you can make argument on different fundamentals around supply-demand balance, but copper, which is more or less in demand, off about 3% today, too. So I think any whiff of the dollar uh, making a bigger move than the move it's already put in, I think is going to be actually very difficult for what's a great resources trade that I still believe in. Uh, but they've pulled back as much as a lot of these big cap tech names. And I, and I think uh, it's something to watch. Steve? Yeah, so getting back to the, to, to the miners. So GDX, if I were, were to be a buyer of gold, I would buy the miners. The miners usually outperform two or three to one. So GDX is up about 36% year to date, while GLD is only up about 25% year to date. So I would expect that outperformance to ratchet higher. I do agree with Guy. Gold's going higher, which equates to miners going higher as well. Coming up, we've got one play that could bulk up your portfolio. We'll hit the options pits for that. And Kramer's all over today's big reversal. Plus, he is headed to the cloud. There he is chatting with the Anaplan CEO. Be sure to catch that full interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Meantime, much more fast in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Costco has been one of the biggest winners of the consumer trade this year. And over in the options markets, uh, traders are betting shares will continue their winning ways when reports earnings tomorrow. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So, yes, Costco saw more than double the average daily options volume today and calls significantly outpaced puts. Right now, the options market is implying that the stock could move almost $15 higher or lower. That's about 4.3% of the stock price. And that compares with a change of about 3.1% over the last eight quarters. And the most active options were the weekly 350 strike calls. The buyers of those were paying about $5.70, and the total volume of over 4,000 contracts exceeded the existing open interest, so we could tell that those were opening trades. And obviously those buyers are expecting the stock to finish the week higher by at least the $5.70 they paid. That means that the stock needs to go up at least 3% before those options traders see profits. Karen, do you like Costco? I do like Costco. I don't own it, which I've said for a while. That was a mistake. But, I mean, they do a fantastic job. And I think they'll be fine in the pandemic and out. It's a great company. Uh, It seems like buying things in bulk, particularly things like, I don't know, toilet paper, Steve Grasso, uh, is perfect for the pandemic. Yes, and and I agree with with Karen. The point she was, uh, I believe, making is that Would people have the habits of stocking up and bulk buying? They're doing the same thing through an Amazon or an Amazon pantry, but going to Costco and and bulking up on toilet paper, on water, on supplies, on canned foods, that shopping habits are not going to change. And I think they're going to take some time before we unwind and get back to a more normal, quote unquote, shopping pattern. So I think Costco is going to benefit Walmart will benefit through Sam's Club and Amazon will benefit through Pantry. But I believe that Costco now is flirting with that all-time high in the 360s. So if Mike is right about option traders, that's what you're gaming for, that 363 price. I would not buy it on a blow-off top here. I kind of hedge my bets and pace myself and wait till that level holds for at least three days, the three-day rule again. You have a smirk on your face, Guy, so I'll permit you to participate in this conversation. (laughs) No, I was thinking you could you you could hedge that um, 
bulk buying of toilet paper bet by just, you know, getting yourself some Beyond Meat burgers. I mean, that works great for me. I'm Cheerios. sure it works great for our audience as right. well. Right, in your case. Cheerios. I mean, there's a number or of things. General Mills. Yeah, Cheerios. Yeah. Forget mm-hmm. it, man. Yeah. Fair trade. Without okay. getting into great detail. Uh, yeah. News you can use. <laughs> Not really. Uh, Mike Coe, thank you. <laughs> for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. For the final trade, let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, I stay with Dan's Twitter on this one. Second quarter, DAUs were up 34%. Revenues were up 18%. And I think the monetization is, is happening. Maybe not as fast as some want, but stay there. Karen Feinerman. Yes, I think that the housing trade is very much intact. I like Lowe's. I love what Marvin Ellison is doing. He had some traction going before the pandemic. He just continued to accelerate through it. It's not crazy expensive at all. Lowe's. Steve Grasso. So if we're going to have less QE, dollars going higher, gold in theory should be going lower. But I'm looking at GDX, as I mentioned before, the gold miners. You could wait a little bit here, wait till it recaptures the 100-day, which is 38.23. But ultimately, I think it goes higher, so GDX should outperform the metal. Guy Adami. Mel, we talked about the hospitals on Monday that J.P. Morgan downgraded THC. I think the 21 and a half low today is enough. THC for a bounce. Thanks for watching. Fast to see back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.